arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Look here. In few places on Earth does the past display itself as generously as along these coastal cliffs. Run your hands down the strata of rock and you are riffling the pages of history. Frozen in the geology of today are the prehistoric creatures whose shells, pulverized by pounding sea, became the sand of yesteryear beaches. And that sand, grit and spoil of an ancient epoch, was cemented into this, our past, locked in rock. Another harvest important to the coast was granite, millions of tons of it, pried from island quarries and muscled aboard ships to construct grand edifices throughout our country and others. You see it today along island roads, in seawalls and gardens. The grand old captain's homes set high on promontories from which the better to survey the seas that were their realm. Even today, if you'd like to do some time traveling back to the past, travel the coast of Maine. Arrive as the great essayist E.B. White used to arrive when fleeing frantic New York for the solace of the Maine coast. Beyond Kittery come the beaches. For tens of thousands of summer people, the names Wells, York, Ogunquit, Old Orchard, Kennebunk and Kennebunk Port mean vacation. Beyond Portland, the scenery changes. The coast begins to grow more vagrant. Fingers of land probing the sea, fingers of sea dividing the land. And as this mid-coast interleaves bay and peninsula, it blends old and new. Down east, it is called, though a map will tell you it is up. But again, it goes back to sailing days, when from Boston, with prevailing winds, the sail to Maine was downwind, down east. Here, the bays grow wider, are more open to ocean, with fewer harbors and smaller. Perhaps the crashing of the surf on seaweed releases iodine into the air, and perhaps it is that iodine which gives Maine's sea breeze its tang, and perhaps somehow stimulates creative juices. Maybe that, he speculated, is why such a small piece of America has produced so much of our art as has America's coast. You've been listening to snippets of a documentary by the late Jack Perkins on Maine's coast. I've worked and traveled through Arizona, dry with pastel desert vistas, where Maddie Summers lives in my book, Exchange House. The main coast would be perfect for Maddie Summers to get away, 3,000 miles, from her abusive husband, where she could paint and relax along the rocky coast. I should insert the word isolated, because isolated is the key to what Maddie will go through at the Exchange House. This novel has a gentle temperament, along with a frightful presence. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Let us begin Exchange House with Episode 1. Exchange House 
by R. P. Fitton. Chapter One. The magazine ad said that people could exchange houses for an indefinite period of time and enjoy the advantages of living far from home. Between an unfinished demitasse of espresso and the slow, slender strokes of the artist's brush, Maddie shuffled beneath her studio's frosty wire mesh ceiling and gently held the magazine's glossy cover. New England Life's photographs possessed depth and perspective. In her thoughts, she approached the arch entrance of a red-covered bridge in Vermont as a fast-moving stream gurgled below. But John was not with her, as she pretended to amble through the bridge's darkened corridor to the maples on the far side. She had come to despise John, dreading his return from extended business trips, his predilection with sports and gambling, and his simple neglect. She lifted the slender cup to her soft lips and sipped the liquid perfection. With her long, smooth fingers, smeared with ochre and crimson acrylic, she turned to the newly printed magazine pages. The articles read and reread. She had scrutinized each rural picture since the magazine's arrival yesterday afternoon and longed for a new perspective from the parched Arizona desert and her absent husband. Exchange House, an 1850s house with a farmer's porch, restored to the simplicity of another era, located in rural Rexford, Maine, on 25 acres of spreading woodland, a rock cliff ocean view, and hiking trails. Owners will arrange house exchange for indefinite periods of time. Details to follow. Maddie checked a New York area code and penciled the numbers across the envelope for John's subscription to corporate maneuvers, another publication he claimed was essential to his business activities. She smiled and shook her head. Sometimes she wished he were dead, or at the minimum gone. All the nights spent at home anticipating his calls from some distant part of the country or the world, waiting for his infrequent airport arrivals, had accumulated into a heavy burden. Maine was light years from Phoenix and John. She reached for the slim white phone atop the TV, pushed her lips together, and punched in Deborah's number in Tempe. Deborah would have an opinion about a trip alone to Maine. The line clicked and rolled over loudly, as the Tempe line always did. A young voice shot out a quick greeting through gum popping. Good morning, Blaze Cuts, a unisex hair-cutting salon. I would like to speak with Deborah Raines, please. The phone dropped, probably onto the white and black tile floor she was so familiar with, and the loud bass pounded through the salon speakers she remembered were above the mirrored walls. Maddie's short, rusted hair was shaped perfectly by her friend just ten days ago. Deborah said bright aqua eyes should not be buried in a dead bird's nest of hair. Deborah Rains? It's me. Well, I have to say you have perfect timing. I just finished six seniors ready for class pictures. In August, can you believe it? Did we have our class pictures taken in August? Maddie's upper lip curled as she thought back to a younger time before John. Her friend's animated manner, such a contrast to her own sedate ways, enlivened her. August, yes, it was August, but then again, that was 15 years ago, D.R. Oh, was it? Oh, God, we're becoming ancient. When are you coming back, Maddie? John must be out of town. Again? Well, he sent me roses. Ha, his calling card. John was out of town again. A swing through Northern California to open new corporate accounts. 
but he promised to return for the weekend. Well, John will fit me into his schedule starting Saturday morning. Oh, drop him, kid. I took a break and was looking through New England life. Ah, another again, Maddie. Why don't you just plan a trip to New England? You've always wanted to go to the place. Hell, you've never been east of the Mississippi. True. There's a certain ad that allows you to exchange your home for a beautiful old home from the 1800s. Maddie looked down at the ad. They don't specify a time period or limitation on the arrangement. Deborah yelled something back to one of the girls in the salon. Then her voice swung back to the higher volume. I think that's a perfect arrangement. Go alone. Deborah's words were exactly the words she wanted to hear. I just might, but I worry about John. John is devoted to business or finding the odds on the next NFL game. He hasn't got time for women. A man always has time for women, especially if he's away. Forget about him sending you those roses. You go up to Maine and stay there for a month if you have to. Maybe that will smarten him up. John is a self-centered pig. How do you really feel about him, DR? You call Maine and you let me know how you made out. Okay, I will. Talk to you later, Maddie. Maddie slowly set down the phone back into the cradle and lifted the glossy magazine upward. A rural house with a farmer's porch overlooking a rocky cliff in Maine was spread across the center pages. In another month, the trees would be vivid with color along those hiking trails, and she could almost hear the ocean waves crashing against the worn rocky extrusions. Then she checked the long-distance number lifted the phone to her ear, and dialed. Chapter 2 John arrived exactly when he said he would arrive, at 9.30 on Saturday morning. His red tie, gold initial clasp, perfectly in place, matched his suspenders, and was flawlessly looped over his unwrinkled white shirt. The early breakfast meeting in Bakersfield must have left him chipper as he strutted boldly up the terminal ramp. When he caught sight of Maddie, he swung the overnight bag over his right shoulder, tightened his cheek muscles, and broke into a run. The routine was exactly the same at every arrival. She would tuck her head quickly into his chest, and then he would tell her how much he missed her. Yet, within 48 hours, he would be back to his pugnacious world of new accounts, budgets, sales quarters, and reachable only through voicemail. Maddie had left the magazine on the front seat of her sports car, but was unsure when she would tell him she was going to Maine alone. She resented the way he would just take over the car, racing onto the freeway, while she listened to the great things he had accomplished during his trip. The magazine, open to the exchange house ad, was gripped tightly with her sweaty hands as John wove her car through the sparse freeway traffic. He alluded to playing a few rounds of golf when they passed the luscious 18-hole spread. The club only represented more time away. I painted a magnificent sunset this week, John. Over the desert, I modeled it after Frederick Church's painting, Twilight in the Wilderness. I know some corporate people who have connections to the uh, market artwork. I'll make a call when we get in. He handed her a wad of bills from his pocket. What's this, more money from a poker game? I always say it doesn't matter where the money comes from as long as you have it in your hand. 
Maddie winced and squinted over the city buildings bright in the morning light. Again she looked down at the glossy page, adjusting for the glare. As John talked on the cell phone about betting on some preseason game, she wished things were different. In another realm, she fancied herself in bed with him at this distant house, looking out the window at the heightened fall leaves near the ocean. At the same time, solitude in the exact same setting meant no complications or demands. The car jolted and the rubber tires scraped against the concrete. Maddie hoped that he had not seen her wince. John pushed the remote and the front bronzed aluminum gate electronically opened. He shifted and moved along the fabricated stone wall garden. Everything was precisely where he had planned it, and the landscapers had placed it. And when he stopped abruptly at the terrace garage, Maddie knew exactly what he would say next. Good to be home. Damn good to be home. Maddie opened the bathroom's pastel green louver door. In his blue boxer shots, propped on several pillows, John clicked the remote between a fast-paced soccer game and a lazy West Coast baseball game in Seattle. He slowly turned, exposing his straight, bright teeth as she tightened her white silk robe. You're great, Matt. Then he switched to a preseason football game. Thank you. Maddie glanced at the red-tailed hawk in flight over the starry early morning skies on the back cover of New England Life. She shared the bird's quest for the open space freedom, pursing her lips slightly as John Channel Surf passed three movies, an interesting older classic, and he ended up back at the Seattle baseball game. These guys have a damn good team. I like them. Seattle? No, Maddie, where have you been? Baltimore. The phone rang and he picked it up immediately. John Summers. Yeah, no, 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 you're not disturbing me, Harland. He stood and walked over to the phone, near the side table and the slider drapes. She rolled her eyes and removed her robe and slippers. As she slipped across the soft sheets, he flipped on the hanging wicker shade lamp and sat down. He never got away from business. She watched him helplessly as he plugged in his laptop and data sheets soon filled the screen readout. Company figures and statistics stood like soldiers at attention across the screen as the sportscaster's velvet voice spewed forth colorful stories and a rundown of all the major league box scores. She grabbed the remote and found the black-and-white film noir from over 60 years ago. No, Harland, I see a 52% uh, gain in that account. Right, right, we've got the bastard. Maddie furrowed her brow and slapped the remote on his side of the bed and then stood. She crossed over the plush alabaster rug on her bare feet and retrieved the magazine. Once in bed, she stole his pillows and lay down with her long legs over a folded quilt. She propped the magazine on her stomach. For over 15 minutes, she visited every brightly colored New England shot and stopped at the ocean pictures of lighthouses, photographed against the inflated cumulus puffs along Maine's rocky coast. Her anger and resentment whirled out of control. She clenched her fist at the sight of John's clicking keyboard and slapped the magazine against the sheets. John! John's head snapped away from the screen and he raised his index finger. No, John! The conference call is over, damn it! Maddie! He said, turning down the corners of his mouth. He shook his head at her as if she was some aberrant little schoolgirl. Harlan, no, no, you're not disturbing anything, right? Yes, we would enjoy having dinner with Mrs. Hines, sure. 
Let's set a date, sure. Maddie crawled over the bed and swung around the table. She pushed the laptop's power button and quickly stepped back. John's screen went blank. His eyes opened abruptly as if someone had died. She smiled, holding the connector in her hand. Your plug has been pulled. Ah, Harland, it seems like I've had some connection problems here. Listen, why don't we check the Texas accounts in the morning? Sure, say around 7.30? Right. And you have a productive night now. He set down the phone and his strong facial muscles wrapped around his high cheekbones as he thrust out his jaw. His speech was stilted. Just what the hell do you think you're doing? You can power off the laptop, John, or you can power off this marriage. That's a little extreme, wouldn't you say, Maddie? Don't talk about extreme, John. You spend more time talking with Harlan than you do with me. Although I have to be more convenient for you. John stared at her and said nothing. Aware of his violent temper, she was not sure what he would do. He lowered his head and shot toward the liquor cabinet and poured amber liquor into a tall glass. He gulped most of it and then looked into the glass as he spoke. You enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. But I have to plan for it. Stick it into your schedule. Pay attention, will you, John? You're always away. Oh, you send your roses all the time. But that doesn't cut it. He lifted the remaining liquor to his lips and poured it down his throat. Then he slammed the glass on the silver tray. Hey, I support that little studio of yours downtown. And I had this spread out here built. You have the pool, Maddie, you have the grounds, and you have the mega house. But I don't have you, do I? His body tensed, he lunged and squeezed her arm. The hatred in his steel-cold eyes shook her. She had crossed the line with him, and she knew it. Maybe she wanted to cross the line and provide herself the cover she needed for Maine. And don't you ever interfere with my business calls. The tightness in his jaw eased, but he continued to grip her arm. Or you will regret it, Maddie. I will make you regret it. He released her arm, leaving a red band of trailing pressure points across her skin. Seconds later, he had on his pants and had thrown over a jersey as he carried his sneakers downstairs. Her hand shook, and she still feared he would hit her. She never should have cut the laptop power. With moistened eyes and mouth open, Maddie shuffled to the bedroom window and pulled the louver back as John trotted down the slate walk to the lower garage. Go ahead, John. Bail out. This is one account you have lost. The garage door slowly rumbled upward and her car started. He skidded deliberately down the concrete, somehow opening the front gate as he spun the tires down the road. Maddie lingered at the open window for 15 minutes, staring at the stars over the desert and the lights in the darkness away from the city. He would not return soon, and she didn't want him back. She turned, her throat tight, and plodded down the cold stairs to the kitchen. Goosebumps covered her bare skin, and she felt his hand still encircled her arm. In the darkness, she opened the lower sliders and turned on the pool's underwater lights. She removed her nightie and let it fall to the tiles. The cooler air invigorated her soft, exposed skin. She walked over to the concrete and placed her feet on the shiny blue tiles. This feeling of being alone was not so bad. She dove into the pool's warm water, swam below the surface, 
and cleansed her body as she tried to forget she had ever met him. Chapter 3 On a clear October day, designer sunglasses shading her eyes, Maddie drove a sputtering red compact with marginal brakes up the winding two-lane highway near Rexford, Maine. A faint cigarette odor lingered in the car. Although she found no ashes in the tray, she kept the window cracked. The engine did not approach the power of her Mercedes, and any car complaints only contributed to a creeping anxiety, the accumulated result of sleepless nights and an abusive failed marriage. The barrage of color lining State Highway 102 to Rexford masked her somber mood, but the cooler air brought a variety of new scents, including the lure of breakfast from roadside restaurants and the pervasive chimney smoke hanging in the burgeoning sunlight. Fog pockets sunk into the glens across the undulating countryside's colored popcorn trees. In the four weeks since she had separated from John, she became unhinged at the thought of his pummeling fists. Maddie had contacted the owners of the exchange house, the Rialto Hotel concern in New York. Selling the Arizona house was not far away. She had met a couple called the Burgesses and their two boys, who had traveled from St. Paul, Minnesota, to bathe in the sun and see a land where they would not stand knee-deep in snow before Halloween. She slowed at the overhead traffic light and pulled to a squealing stop behind a battered black pickup. Rubbing her eyes, she wanted to rest her body in the poster bed advertised in the freshly printed Rialto brochures she had left on the kitchen counter in Phoenix. She turned left and was drawn to the sloping meadow behind a weathered stone wall to her right. The pale, dried corn stalks shielded a deep emerald field dabbed with grazing white and black cattle just a few hundred yards away. Everything went at the pace required up here. She searched for the window push button, smiling as she manually rolled up the side window, sealing out the pickup's rich gas mixture. Only ten minutes ago, she had reached in vain for her cell phone. Now she twisted the noisy AM dial as the truck turned and accelerated ahead. Good morning, exclaimed the unpolished local radio personality. Maddie laughed, covered her lips, and turned down the chrome radio knob. Well, this is Chester Osborne and the Morning Roadhouse Gang. Hoping your fall morning is bright and wonderful. Did get chilly out there last night, didn't it? Well, the wife read a full 19 degrees on the kitchen mercury at 430. But it's warmed up to a balmy 27 here in downtown Rexford. Warmer temperatures are expected before unsettled weather comes in later in the week. Rexford. I'm going to Rexford. Maddie held the plastic wheel with both hands and the tiny car engine whined down the highway. Yes, I'm going to the exchange house, Mr. Chester Osborne and the Morning Road Gang. Rexford. The downtown home. It was not the usual green and white highway sign. Atop a wooden post, gold letters were carved into a glossy chestnut paint, and the remnants of yellow petal flowers with brown centers were surrounded by deeper-hued azure wildflowers and dew-laden grass. She spotted a few daisies up the embankment as she passed into Rexford. Back where she lived, everyone grabbed for land, developing every square inch to its maximum potential. Maddie wondered why the forest and occasional farmer's field had escaped the new buildings and housing tracks. 
She emerged from a dense thicket, and sunlight danced across the road's solid yellow line. At a long bridge span, a dirty white state highway sign indicated Rexford Center was two miles away. The radio's flowing violin and French horn chorus fit perfectly into the spreading river's sparkling ripples below. Red and yellow leaf trees nestled between the towering pines, and clumps of white birches lined the sloping riverbanks, merging into a marshy grass plain along the steel ocean to the east. It was the openness and freedom she had long sought. Peace. Distant rocky ocean cliffs with hairline trees pushed through the dissipating fog, coating the sandy beach expanse. What looked like a space capsule or a corrugated teepee was planted within the marsh at the river's wide mouth. A thin gray smoke layer spewed from its top and twisted like a lost thought out to sea. She entered the woods again and a few clapboard houses, mostly white, with green or black shutters, appeared behind stone walls, set back from the highway. Many had upward and outward additions. All had chimneys. Side barns and shed near the remnants of harvest fields were left natural or painted red. Maddie had never seen structures so steeped in history and boarded in color burst. It was all new and vital and seemed to ease the phoenix pain. Yet a constant creeping uncertainty followed her into town. She read the dusty envelope back in Phoenix. The instructions were contained on a professionally arranged letter inside, with detailed directions from Portland along Highway 102, as well as a more complex map from Rexford Center to the Exchange House. Her first order of business was to make a stop at 601 Main Street, the upstairs office of the house's caretaker. Daniel McCabe. She nodded her head and checked his phone number as she rounded the bend near a white clapboard church and weathered gravestones. A group of green-necked mallards cut through the reflected foliage across a clear pond behind the graveyard. A linear waterfall, less than a few feet high, emptied under an aluminum fence bridge below the road. The highway swung around, completing a wide turn from the church. A string of gambrels and salt boxes were set back from the road across green lawns, busy with leaves spinning within the periodic wind gusts. Rexford's downtown brick and weathered shingle buildings brought her back in time. Main Street, according to the sign past the waterfall, traversed the highest hill, with numerous side streets descending onto rolling landscape bulges along a fast-moving stream. Maddie located number 601 a white shingle two-story gable building wedged between the town's movie theater, the Ballyhoo, and a run of shops, including a stationer's shop and a drugstore. The brakes squealed again, and she pulled the little car along to the curb near an expired silver parking meter. When she shut off the engine, the car shuddered and spit before chugging off. She slid her brown leather coat over the front seat as the cooler air and the residual gasoline exhaust filtered into the car. Her first instinct was to check the outside temperature on the car thermometer, but she smiled when she only saw the rental car's simple tan vinyl dash. Without power locks, she did not bother to lock the car, nor did she place the money in the sidewalk meter. She stepped onto the concrete, crunching a few random leaves as she peered down the sidewalk. People frequented the busy stores of the cozy little town. Already, she relished the slower life, away from the freeways and the malls. Chapter 4 
The faded black wood sign swayed, squeaking at the rusted hinges. MC Property Management. She opened a heavy green door and stepped into a musty hallway, lighted by a single cobweb window with two large panes, one of them cracked. Thin, varnished wood slat molding followed the narrow, steep stairway upward. She knocked on the panel door to her right and waited for this Daniel McCabe, probably a pot-bellied maintenance type with tools hanging from his belt. Someone turned down a radio inside. Maddie waited as a woman's shaky, muffled voice escaped through the door. He's upstairs. Well, I'm looking for Daniel McCabe. That's right. A few moments later, the radio voices again bantered about the apartment. Maddie raised her dark brows and started up the brown vinyl stair treads. A square stained glass window cast a sea-green light across the wood wall as the stairway curved into the darkness. Maddie was not sure whether her heart thumped from exertion or uncertainty. Another heavy door, unpainted, with a chipped brick wall, showed no designation for the property management company. For a brief moment, she set one foot on the lower step and knocked briskly on the bare wood. Her increased heartbeat had nothing to do with climbing the stairs. She was in tremendous shape from daily workouts, but fatigue had handed her an unkind, pervasive fear, not only of what might lurk behind that door, but of the days ahead, alone. As she turned to leave, a smooth yellow light covered the hall and a warm air crawled over her exposed neck and legs. While your car is illegally parked. The voice was strong and masculine and carried authority. Over her shoulder, she saw a well-built man, black hair straight and red flannel shirt molded over his large frame. He smiled with a confidence conveyed in his dynamic black eyes. Then again, I only manage property and uh, haven't been appointed sheriff yet. I thought I'd only be a minute. She extended her hand. Nice to meet you, Mrs. Summers. Maddie's mouth dropped momentarily, but she understood this was a small town and her arrival was probably big news to this guy. I take it you are Mr. McCabe, she said in her most liberated and clear tone. Well, you take that right. His smile lessened as he squinted and folded his arms across his chest. You gonna hang out in the stairway or should I shut the door? At floor level, she looked across the spit-polished oak floor and several new desks and computers. It's quite the office. You mean in light of the dump that you saw outside when you came in? Right, well, I mean it is a dump. He took her hand and walked her inside. The vinyl rim windows looked new and so did the plastered ceiling and green textured wall covering. Maddie looked through the vertical blinds at the red rental car parked at the expired meter. She put her hands in her coat pockets and then turned. So, you're McCabe. Fairbanks house goes way back. I helped restore it when Rialto bought it five years ago. Originally to a sea captain. Lost at sea? Maddie's stomach growled. She had not eaten since a dreadful airline breakfast over Ohio. I haven't eaten. McCade's ability not to flinch and not to respond to her questions baffled her. Captain Fairbanks is buried in the graveyard. Oh yes, I saw the graveyard when I drove into town. I usually drive my mer No, the captain is buried in the graveyard near the sea. Most visitors usually want to hike the trail up there. McCabe moved near her and looked out the window. He had large, strong hands with veins protruding, even when he held something as light as a stack of papers. 
I heard your timing problems. My what? Your car. Oh, it's a rental. The car doesn't shut off properly because your timing is off. Maddie looked into his dark, penetrating eyes and was nervous about being so close. She shuffled for a moment and then stepped back toward the other desk. It won't blow up or anything, will it? Well, not unless somebody bombs you. She knew he was trying to be funny and finally produced a quick smile, but her hands shook. McCabe turned away from her shaking hands. Look, uh, Mrs. Summers, I'm separated. I I'm just telling you that because why... Why did I tell you that? I guess I'll be using my maiden name again. I'm surprised you don't have that information, Mr. McCabe. Kendall, how did you know that? This time she laughed and sat on the edge of the desk. Okay, it's on the Rialto app. They asked for my maiden name. Bingo. Listen, Mrs. Summers or Miss Kendall, how about Maddie? Maddie, you have the perfect place to get rid of whatever is making you tense, okay? She didn't know she was so transparent. I apologize if I seem rude. I just want you to know the Fairbanks house is isolated. It's majestic on the cliffs, and you're in Maine at peak foliage. You couldn't ask for anything more. Maddie turned to the window again, aware that John might have shared this quiet time, but now John was gone. Having lived in barren Arizona, Mr. McCabe, I find this area unique and enchanting. He moved by her and peered down at the car. You sound like the Rialto promo literature. Maddie tensed her face and was about to challenge his words. But I can appreciate what you're saying, Maddie. I've lived here all my life, except for three years in the Corps. First Lieutenant. No, I was a military lawyer. You were? She looked up to his stubble face within the silver window light. What? What happened? He asked and took out a pack of cigarettes and then tilted the pack slowly toward her. Cigarette? No, I, I work out. I see. She thought as she stared at the slow-moving traffic, he had glanced down her legs. A large woman in a deep blue police uniform veered toward the red rental. Oh, no. McCabe smiled and exhaled. Smoking the cigarette somehow enhanced his vital appearance. He pushed up the vinyl window, the cooler air rushed in, and he stuck his head outside. Penny, she's a client. The woman adjusted her glasses and looked up toward the second floor as if she were checking who was inside the window. She tipped her hat visor. McCabe pushed the window back to the casing and twisted the clasp. Then he put out his cigarette in the blue metal ashtray, compacted with black ashes and more half-smoked butts. Maddie figured he was trying to break the habit, but he was also the type of guy who would not overly admit it. Thank you. McCabe grinned as he walked to the side desk and typed something on the computer keyboard. A few seconds later, the printer shuddered and spit out a boarded document. He tore off the sheet quickly and went back to the window. It was a simple statement designating her time of arrival as well as specific directions to the exchange house. His upper arm neatly pressed against her leather coat as he explained the directions. She made no attempt to pull back, perversely comforted by the touch of a man she had just met. Well, I'm just a phone call away, Maddie. He turned, she lost his touch, and felt alone again as her stomach gurgled. This is your job? He put his hand briefly on her shoulder and smiled. For some reason, she trusted his smile and thought he was sincere or very clever. Well, I own extensive property in the area. Managing the house is something the Rialto group needed. You want some breakfast? Having breakfast with McCabe was a good diversion. 
He looked both interesting and fun. She did not sense anything beyond that on his part. Well, and you probably need to have that tin can looked at. Tin can? She grinned. I'll be here for a few weeks. McKay picked up a leather briefcase between the water cooler and copier. When he started toward the door, she realized the meeting was over and followed him across the office, all the while questioning why he was not a lawyer now. Rental companies are technically liable for problems with their vehicles. He motioned her into the darkened staircase. As he closed the door, she was wedged between the brick wall and his tallest, stronger body. The lock clicked, and McKay put his hand over her back and started her down the stairs. She hesitated for a moment and looked into McCabe's deep eyes. The one thing she did not need was trouble with the rental car. You look as though you were going to ask me a question, Maddie. The car agreement. I'll call the company and then find a garage to work on the car. McCabe pointed across the street to a red-painted brick building with translucent, dirty windows. Three bays had two cars raised up on hydraulic stainless steel lifts, and the outside lot was strewn with assorted vehicles in various stages of repair. McCabe was a townie and probably would arrange to have the car fixed. He saw her staring at the old building. Never judge a book by its cover. McCabe again pointed down Main Street to a faded yellow diner with a corrugated aluminum roof. You won't find a better breakfast than the down-home diner. Care to join me, Mr. McCabe? I mean, if you have the time. I don't know this place very well. Well, I have an appointment. Do you have your car rental agreement? Maddie nodded and moved down the sidewalk. She opened the passenger side door and bent over and reached into the glove compartment. With four copies in her hand, she turned quickly. McCabe was studying her legs, but she relished the attention. I have it. Yes, you do. Give me your keys. Excuse me? Your keys. I'll have them fix your car at Belson's Garage. Maddie closed her eyes in the brightening sunshine, and several times she tried to speak. Giving McCabe the keys was a stupid idea. She hardly knew the man. Well, the rental company... McCabe moved his new tan work boots across the concrete. He gently grasped the agreement. These people are liable, remember? Well, that's what you said. Take a walk down to the diner, I'll get your car in the garage, and by the time I'm back, say around 11, I'll bring you over to the property. Okay. She placed the car keys into McCabe's calloused hand. Again, she trusted he would take care of the problems. Nothing worse than a bum car. See you around 11. Maddie stood on the curb as McCabe opened her driver's door and set his leather case on the passenger seat. The engine started and blue smoke billowed down the sidewalk. He shook his head from the inside, leaned over and rolled down the passenger side window. This car has major league problems. I'll see what the rental people will do, Maddie. Thank you. McCabe shifted into drive, checked the side mirror, and the tires crunched in the sand as he looped across the cracked pavement. The car rolled into Belson's front lot smoothly, as if it were on a predetermined course. Maddie pulled her notebook strap over her shoulder, and her shoes clicked against the concrete sidewall, sometimes sliding in the sandy residue as she headed for the diner. Chapter 5 She waited for a small truck to pass before she crossed the street. McCabe, rental papers in hand, punched in numbers on the old-style wall phone next to Belson's register and counter. An older man, hands gyrating, walked into the garage. McCabe yelled something and motioned him inside. 
He was like a military man in the way he called out orders and made things happen. Seconds later, an old clunker, rusted along the trunk, made a quick descent down the closest hydraulic lift. One of the mechanics, a little guy with a crew cut and a blue uniform, backed out the car, screeching the tires. She stepped onto the sidewalk near the diner's parking lot and cocked her head. McCabe threw the keys to the mechanic. The mechanic fumbled and dropped the keys, but quickly scooped them up. He started the rental and drove inside. Maddie waited at the curb as an olive-and-white telephone repair truck turned into the diner lot. Then she walked onto a pressure-treated plank ramp and held a shaky banister up to the aluminum door. She opened the door. A tinny radio blasted near the cooking grills. The greasy air was packed with the early morning aroma of bacon and egg breakfast, and cigarette smoke was sucked out through the open window next to the pie case. One by one, the locals looked her over. She would not have worn such a short dress, but she assumed that she would have arrived at the exchange house by now. Those men looked benign, then went back to their sports pages or argued about local and state politics as they ate breakfast. It was just as well. She wanted anonymity while she was in Rexford. She took a step toward the open booth down the end. The Femica tabletop was cleared but not set. Her perfume had drifted behind her as the heads turned. She should have worn jeans and an old shirt. They would all talk about her now. As she prepared to step into the booth, a short man, unshaven with a blonde ponytail, slid in front of her, captured the booth, and spread a newspaper across the table. He looked up with a toothless smile and a swollen left eye. It's mine. Well, thanks a lot. I won. I really did win. Well, good for you. He pulled out a cigarette pack and turned the newspaper pages. Maddie shook her head, and this time she walked back to the counter and made eye contact with the men in the side booths. Eyes darted and swung by her in an unexpected mass confusion. Now the counter was taken up by a group of telephone repairmen. She pursed her lips and was about to leave when a man, probably in his fifties with a thick mat of gray hair and a green checkered shirt, motioned one of his friends up. He waved her forward at the counter as he stood. Free seat right here. Oh, that's all right, said Maddie, shaking her hands. She looked at his wedding ring and then up at the full plates lined on the stainless steel racks, awaiting transport by the pink uniform waitresses. Okay. She walked around the end stool and sat. I'm Preble. I work for the phone company. You just passing through? Maddie grinned. She had met a man who had no idea why she had come to Rexford. No, I'll be here for a few weeks. Really? You don't look like you're from around here. Arizona. A short waitress, elevated by the floor behind the counter, held a yellow pencil over a small green pad. Order. Do you have bagels and cottage cheese, maybe some espresso? We got English muffins and butter. And the La Fontaine blend. The grungy guy with the ponytail stared over the top of the newspaper. Well, that's fine. I'll throw in some jam, said the waitress as she turned to Preble. Your eggs and bacon are on the shelf, Preb. Good. She could see Preble turn toward the guy in the booth. Raymond Snowden. If he keeps looking at you, I'll have a little talk with him. Sometimes he takes things a little bit too seriously. Maddie nodded and listened to Preble talk about his wife and three boys, all playing on Rexford's football team this fall. He was about to celebrate his 20th wedding anniversary, but his eyes lit up 
when she mentioned the exchange house. He described the acreage, where he played as a boy on the cliffs, and he said that Captain Fairbanks was buried behind the graveyard through the woods. Maddie nibbled through her muffin, but had trouble with the acrid coffee. Raymond Snowden was not in the window booth, but his cigarette burned in the glass ashtray next to the newspaper and a plate of half-eaten pancakes. He had stroked her insecurity about her being so far from home and in the middle of a marriage breakup. Mr. Preble, she said and stood and pasted a happy glow on her face. Call me Preb. Preb stood briefly and shook her hand. If you need anything while you're here in Rexford, you just call me or Abby. Leave rested and relaxed when you go back to Arizona. Thank you, Preb. Maddie left a crisp $10 bill under the plate and waved at Preb again. But as she headed for the door, she focused on the smoldering cigarette and the window's table ashtray. She checked her thin French watch that John had bought on an overseas business trip. McCabe would return from his appointment in an hour and a half. Goosebumps swept down her legs as she pushed open the door's plexiglass and stepped into the cooler air down the ramp. She had the odd thought that someone was watching her as she looked past the numerous shops and older brick facades. Such a jittery feeling was normal, she thought, for a new person in a small rural town. The storefronts, the sidewalks, and parking lots revealed nothing unusual. In a short while, she would arrive at the quiet house from the last century, along the shore, and when she left, she might attain the confidence she so sorely lacked at this very moment. Chapter 6 McCabe's polished black pickup pulled away from Belson's garage. Unlike many new models, it was trimmed in glistening chrome and reflected the distortion of yellow leaves in the late morning light. The tires were wider than most trucks she had seen roaring past her Phoenix studio. I see you're still here said McCabe with a quick grin from behind the wheel. I am. He left the powerful engine running and trundled around the truck's shiny black hood. Maddie thought as he opened the side door how John would have never opened any door for her. Thank you. He closed the door and a smooth new gray leather seat soothed her bare legs. In the wide mirror's spotless polarizing light, McCabe walked into Belson's garage. She leaned back in the seat circling her long fingers over the flawless leather. And within the new truck's freshness, her anxiety quickly abated. At least she didn't have to deal with those garage mechanics and the loud popping when they removed lug nuts within the choking stale automobile exhaust. McCabe emerged, carrying both her white suitcases and tucked the overnight under his arm. His biceps were rounded and long straight veins laced his hairy forearms, forming a conjunction above his wide hands. His knuckles whitened. He lifted the cases upward in one singular motion, while keeping the overnight bag pressured against his chest, and set them all inside the black vinyl truck bed liner. He placed the overnight next to the other cases, and stretched a red elastic cord securely around the girth. Maddie studied every pristine inch of the cab before McCabe returned inside. A CD case was the only item out of place or not put away and country music inundated the air. She peered through the rearview mirror again as McCabe tightened a third cord with a vicious intensity around the suitcases, but as she glanced in the side mirror, the ponytail Raymond Snowden slowly savored his cigarette back at the garage. Her body tensed, and she enveloped her smooth hands around the truck's thick door handle. 
She turned away toward the church bend, but her eyes gradually crept back to the side mirror, and the bare cloud of cigarette smoke rose into the warming air surrounding the empty garage doorway. McCabe opened the truck door, and instantly his large frame and red flannel shirt filled the cab. He smiled as he looked over at her, furrowing his brow as he backed up the truck. He said the weather today would be warm. Are you all right, Maddie? Who's Raymond Snowden? McCabe's face soured. Raymond, little Raymond. He checked over his shoulder and turned onto Main Street. He give you a hard time? Well, he took my booth at the diner. Oh, what a big man. Maybe somebody will kick the shit out of him again and he'll smarten up for a few months. McCabe smiled as if he had just relayed some poignant words for a living. Then he looked at her again. Don't worry about Raymond Snowden, Maddie. He has a predictable routine. Spends nights at the Surfside, gets home around 9.30, and his mother puts him to bed. By 7, he's working at Belson's. He's a scary character. He's just a little kid who never grew up. If you stole his marbles, he'd probably go crying home to his mother. He works at Belson's? She sat up in the seat as McCabe's blinker pounded on the dashboard. That man is working on my car, the rental car? He's a good mechanic, Raymond. I'll give him that. Maddie closed her eyes and her stomach nodded. She pictured Raymond's self-assured grin when he took the window booth. He was a little kid, taking what he thought was his, but with no compromise. His glossy blue eyes were probably the result of smoking marijuana, although she hadn't detected that distinctive odor. Then her mind shot back to John and his sometimes frequent use of that drug and other drugs. John scared her. Raymond scared her. And she would soon be alone. The truck dipped, jostling her as she checked the side mirror. Raymond Snowden, the rental car in the garage, were back atop the hill behind the bridge girders. The truck rumbled to the other side, and McCabe went left, under a weathered black railroad trestle, stretching over a series of rapids. The good news is the rental company will foot the bill. Well, you didn't have to do that, thank you. He didn't have to do anything he did. His politeness seemed too good to be true, yet she sensed he was genuine, probably the result of his military background, or maybe his mother just taught him good manners. Well, some things you just don't let go. Hey, if you're worried about little Raymond, taking that booth was a power play. He has no power, Maddie. He's a little boy. Let him play his games. Has he ever been violent? His muscles tensed and he gripped the wide wheel and his blue eyes tightened as he turned. Maddie, the Fairbanks house is safe. Raymond is a little shit and you're losing control. She pushed her lips together as she closed her eyes. Ever since she walked into that upper office, she had the odd feeling McCabe knew everything about her, not just what was contained in the official Rialto application. My husband and I separated. I came up here to forget that and all the failure that goes along with it. When McCabe said nothing and turned onto a long length of forested highway, she sensed he knew about John and the dead relationship. You have uh, artist supplies coming. How did you know that? McCabe stared ahead, but he must have known the outburst was inappropriate. Forwarding slip from Federal Express. You directed the supplies to my office. I was afraid there'd be no one at the house. Maddie, you don't have to defend yourself. If I seem to know things about your personal life, I'm sorry, it's my job. Now she had only the semblance of a friend up here mad at her. 
She sat upright, so rattled she wanted to crawl into a tub of hot water and stay there for hours. The distance from town and his ensuing silence contributed to her accumulating tension. How far out are we? Five miles. The cutoff is around the bend. Another mile and a half to the hilltop. Hilltop? The Fairbanks house was built on this high igneous protrusion. Geologically, it all happened during the Silurian period, 400 plus million years ago. Oh, you're a geologist. I like facts. They stick in my head. Hence the rocky view over the bay. McCabe started to reach for the cigarettes on the seat as he slowed the truck. She looked back into the side mirror, cognizant that the tree-lined road had not a single house on it since they emerged from the railroad trestle road. In another time, she might have traveled this road next to John in a fast-moving sports car. She slowly turned. McCabe's mighty hands controlled the wheel, and she visualized his bare, broad shoulders and wide chest under the flannel shirt, but clenched her fist for sheltering such thoughts. She wanted no relationship now, physical or otherwise, only time alone. He didn't signal, and he turned right onto a narrow, tree-lined dirt road. Electrical and phone lines sagged between the leaning, weathered poles within the pines. Many people use this place? Year-round. You live back in town? Split Colonial, south of town. The road sloped, started upward. Oh, can I buy you dinner tonight, Maddie? What? I said, can I bring you to Brisky Whiskey's for dinner? She glanced at him quickly, skimming his dark eyes, hoping he would have asked it, but afraid that he had. I think I'll stay in. McCabe ground his teeth and looked around the forest. She was too abrupt again, and he seemed unusually miffed, as if he had problems dealing with rejection. His knuckles tightened to the bone on the wheel, and the veins pushed back under his skin. He said nothing for several minutes as Maddie studied the roadside's red underbrush and colored slopes dotted with birches and pines. The tree-lined entanglement and McCabe's continued silence disoriented her. More unwanted tension pulsed down her tight arms as he tapped on the door handle. Between two maples, branches thick with yellow leaves looping over the earthy lane, was a clearing and a bordering gray stone wall constructed like a fortress barrier atop the hill. A white shingled shed was nuzzled between a lumpy oak trunk and another stone wall running diagonally up a wooded knoll to the right. She saw lawnmower blades leaning against the dirty side windowpane. McCabe did not break but coasted along an uncut green lawn with a black volleyball net boarded with a pink neon stripe, an adjacent horseshoe pit, and a brick-arched barbecue. He steered toward a brown, mildewed, stuccoed garage, but Maddie studied the house. The exchange house's almond clapboards provided a linear smoothness around two small wings, and the pane windows were boarded by aging maroon shutters. Dormers protruded from the rear section's cedar-shake roof. Lacy curtains and the window's tiny square glass sheets reflected the dazzling autumn display against the blue sky. She loved the way the tree-branch shadows waltzed over the facade, but she was taken aback by the farmer's porch. Beyond the fluted post, the rounded rock cliffs cut a swath through the foliage, revealing a wide blue ocean expanse to the thin horizon. Maddie turned to express her delight, but McCabe had already opened the door and had moved around to the truck bed. She stepped outside and removed her leather coat in the warming sun. 
Smiling broadly, she took a few steps across the smatted, crushed bluestone and the worn tire tracks. McCabe hoisted her bags upward as she surveyed the extensive grassy grounds behind the house. She had done nothing wrong by not accepting his dinner invitation. Maybe in a few days she would enjoy a place like Brisky Whiskey's. Holding the bags, his eyes looked as if they were irritated by an elevated pollen count, and he spoke in a higher, snappy voice. My uh, cell number is on the card next to the uh, phones inside. Call me if you need anything. Hey, McCabe, maybe another day. Your uh, car will be done in the morning. I'll call and leave a message on the machine if you're out. You can check the grounds from the information provided on the packet. I'll see ya. Listen, I want to say something. He opened the side door and slid inside, reaching over to shut her door. The engine started quickly and he backed up in a large circle in front of the garage's two bays. He spun the tire tracks toward the maintenance shed and raced through the two spreading maples at the hill crest. In a dusty mass, the truck disappeared like a skier on a downhill slalom. She tried to forget his touchy attitude, closed her eyes and inhaled the forest sweetness. The bright sun flickered over her lids as a sea breeze brushed against her face. She opened her eyes and exhaled. Birds chirped deep within the woods, up the hill along the sea cliffs behind her. But like a tranquilizing drug, the incessant quietude finally entered her body, smoothing and relaxing her conflicting emotions. The yellow-green birches bordering the cliffs were set within a cascade of radiant-hued maples and oaks. Scrub brush along the forest floor deceptively retained a summer green appearance. Occasionally, a new windburst would pluck a leaf from the yard tree, spin it upward, and then glide it down to the other fallen leaves across the dirt and grass. She crunched the drier curled leaves as she retrieved her bags and glanced past the maintenance shed and wondered why McCabe became so indignant. Holding the bags, she perused the house's exterior again before entering. The house and the gray porch boards were crisp and clean. She smelled fresh paint. The stone foundation, held in place with chipped and replacement mortar, revealed the house's true age. Dark cellar windows were cracked open, and the side clapboards housed a glass electrical meter and junction boxes for the telephone and power. The black wire was painted up the clapboards and connected at the white gable corner. Both lines slumped to the weathered pole behind the garage and then continued back through another series of poles toward the highway. She stepped onto an uneven brick walk and started up the porch, but she stopped, captivated by the realization she was alone and miles from anyone. Huge trees with leaves still half green spread sinewy branches toward the house. She stepped up to the smooth gray porch floorboards and her blue cotton dress was revealed through the screen door and inner door as dark and glass. Her dark image reminded her of what she had lost in Phoenix. Yet her fears centered around McCabe's incensed attitude about her declining his dinner invitation, and she feared that she had somehow offended the recalcitrant Raymond Snowden. As she shuffled across the staggering porch leaves, closer to the door, the textured lines of her rusted hair and the intensity within her eyes crystallized beyond the screen. She spun back quickly across the porch and gripped the varnished balustrade. Controlling her accelerated breathing proved impossible. A smooth, swayed rock ledge extended toward the most brilliant blue water she had ever seen, and the surf 
gushed against the rocks below. Without thinking, she descended the stairs and ran across the dirt. She became aware of the height above the sea when her shoes touched the rock edges. Across the vista, a curving sandy shore emerged, sandwiched between the green marshes she had seen on the highway bridge and the continuously breaking wave crests sloshing up the beach. Maddie smiled, glancing briefly from the teepee structure near the river's end to a rock cluster alternately covered with a retreating white brine directly below. The spray shined in the sun for a fleeting moment before disappearing. Vertigo pushed her back. She rustled in the leaves and cranked her heart to a workout pace. The surf crashed behind her and the breeze flapped the tree branches along the rocky edges. Conscious of her vulnerability, she meticulously scanned every bush and tree trunk until the dense forest darkened her line of vision. Her heart pounded and she held her fist tight as a gray squirrel innocently scampered up an oak tree and flew through the air to a nearby branch. She closed her eyes for a second and started back to the porch. As she ran and fumbled for her key, she compulsively focused on the cliffs. A flock of Canadian geese honked high over the bay, no doubt heading for a warmer climate. She pulled back the screen door, keeping it open by securing the pneumatic tube, and pushed the key into the oxidized metal lock, twisting it several times before the inner mechanism popped. The worn steel knob turned easily and the door creaked open. The reading room was to the left, according to the floor plan she had memorized at Poolside in Phoenix. A second-floor staircase was boarded along a rectangular room, and afternoon light poured through two rear windows over the wood-grained floorboards. She imagined herself reading a magazine or a new novel as she stretched out across the red-buttoned upholstered sofa below the staircase and high ceilings. Two additional chairs were placed at the corners next to brass-based lamps with wide pleated shades, and an empty black-and-gold rocking chair stood motionless between the two back windows. Maddie walked across the floorboards to an extensive brick fireplace. Its white mantle was set within sea-green wallpaper, peppered with symmetrical pink roses. Knick-knacks and candles and a deck of cards were strewn along the mantel. In the center, a brass-framed glass clock's mercury pendulum slowly swayed under a flowery, ivory clock face. If she could overcome her fear of the isolation, the time here would gradually bridge the gap to her whole new life away from John. She turned, arms crossed over her chest, and glanced briefly at the tatted black rotary phone on a small table near the staircase's newel post. Then she passed through the large, white-framed opening to the kitchen. The newly waxed blue and vinyl floor squares squeaked as she walked. Then she pulled one of the white cabinet's shiny chrome knobs. Sweet-smelling inner shelves were stacked with dishes. She turned again. Feeling giddy as she retreated to the drop-leaf oak table and saw the ocean visible through the forward bay window. Only the sound of her breathing and heartbeat broke the pervasive stillness. She tiptoed to the bay window and sat on the ledge, smiling as the distant breaking waves rolled across the blue bay, just as she had desired. Even when she was with John, she was now completely alone. Chapter 7 As evening swept over the cliffs, she wanted to watch TV. 
and would have downloaded a video had she been back home in Phoenix. But widescreen TV sets and online movies were replaced by a yellow plastic AM radio on the kitchen counter next to the chrome toaster. In the moonlight stillness miles out of town, Maddie soon became preoccupied with every creak and crack in the century-old house. The radio speaker had amazing fidelity, resonating throughout the kitchen and the reading room. She held a sketch pad in her hand and studied the charcoal beginnings of a landscape sketch of the cliffs, shore, and river, omitting the industrialized incinerator. She held it up to the end table lamp's soft bulb. Then she set the drawing on her blue jersey and folded her hands across her abdomen as the radio sonata from the kitchen played clearer than she had hoped. The fireplace's smooth, white-painted bricks outlined the neatly scrubbed inner hearth, while above, the deep green wallpaper was adorned with a gold-framed landscape painting tinted in somber dark hues. The phone line's long ring overpowered the violin concerto, but she let a few moments pass. Maybe someone had dialed the wrong number or one of those computerized surveys had finally reached the rural woodlands of Maine. With a half-smile, she grasped her pad and was about to start sketching again when another ring shook her. She took the sketch pad as if she were carrying a book to class and marched over to the black rotary telephone. The ring trickled off and she stared at the phone, but the ascending clatter soon gyrated around the room. She grasped the heavy black receiver and placed it against her ear, brushed back some loose hair, and an intermittent hiss rolled into the earpiece. Through the crackle, she heard a car move by and waited for a human voice. Who is this? Distant through the haze, a melodic chiming faded and the line clicked. Maddie held out the receiver and stared at the perforated hard black plastic mouthpiece. When she put it to her ear again, she only heard the voice of the announcer on the kitchen radio. She became cognizant of her pumping heart as she set the receiver back on the hook. For several seconds, she fixated on the bold numbers and letters on the white dial. Now she could not concentrate nor sit down, and she retreated into the kitchen. She turned on a lower wattage wall light, shaped like a large black rooster with a matching red and yellow shade, and panned across the darkened kitchen windows. She wondered if the phone would ring again. Maybe she should leave it off the hook. She sprinted across the kitchen and into the reading room and removed the receiver. The loud dial tone now drowned out the radio commercials. Leaving the phone off the hook would stop any unwarranted calls, but would also leave her isolated. She returned the receiver to its original position. The pink plastic clock's black minute hand moved continuously above the ceramic double sink. 9.30 in Maine meant 7.30 back home. She twisted the radio volume control and returned in silence to call DR. She spun out each number, the line clicking as the dial slowly rotated back into position. The line made an assortment of noises, understandable since she was dialing through a fragile set of wires, extending down the lane and back to the highway and then across the United States. When the line connected and she heard DR's number ringing, she raised her arm in the air and smiled but she remembered thinking about the previous phone call and the muted chimes. You've reached Deborah Reigns. If this is a business call, please leave your name and number and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Damn. Maddie tapped her tightened fist against her pursed lips as the machine beeped. DR, this is Maddie. Someone picked up. Maddie, God, you made it. 
Well, it's mostly warm. DR, listen, I'm miles from nowhere. This house is so quiet. Well, you wanted to get away. I've already started to sketch the cliffs and the ocean. It's so quiet. DR chuckled. Ha, I know what that means. What does that mean? means you made the right move. He called here, you know. What? Over the weekend. I guess he was in Chicago or somewhere. You didn't tell him where I was. Yeah, right. What did he want? He wanted to know how you were. I think he has second thoughts about the divorce. Maddie's eyes pushed upward as she nodded her head quickly. He's still in Chicago, isn't he? Things aren't going to change, DR. Well, he sounded real sorry, but then again, they all do after they use you for a punching bag. Maddie's mouth slowly opened, but she didn't say anything. She had kept the exchange house trip from John because she wanted total privacy. Again, the distant chimes on the phone bounded throughout her thoughts. Maddie, are you there? He's going to find out. He won't find out. If he calls again, you just tell him it's all over. Let me know if he calls you again. I have your number up there. You relax, Maddie. Paint those cliffs in the ocean. Enjoy the time away. John will disappear into his accounts and all those sales figures. Guess you're right. I'll check back with you in a few days, DR. Goodbye. Night. Maddie let the phone fall back into place. She pushed the air from her lungs through her grinding teeth. She grabbed her pad, shutting off the reading room lamps, and plopped herself on the velvet couch. With just the dim kitchen lamp's glow, she pulled the cliff sketch from the pad and set it on the coffee table. She propped her feet up on the table, using her thighs to stabilize the pad, grasping the pencil. She dragged the lead over the rough paper, creating an oval outline of a man's face and squared-off jaw. When she carefully outlined the wide brow and the straight nose, she knew she was bringing McCabe to life on a piece of sketch paper inside a distant, darkened room above the nearby crashing Atlantic surf. The gushing water from the second-floor tub's polished chrome faucet sounded throughout the house, Maddie opened the screen door and stepped into the cool moonlight. Ocean waves, stark in their motion, forever marched inward toward the dreamy marsh. The shore was white under the moon, and a lighthouse beacon on the hill beyond the river swept the bay. She closed her eyes and listened to the distant breakers overlapping the surf, bashing the rocks below. Fear moved concurrently with solitude and loneliness. The idea of anyone coming out here was ludicrous, but she was bothered that John knew she was up here. She folded her arms again. John hated to lose, and there was no telling what he might do. Maddie moved back into the house. She pulled the door shut, listened for the lock to click into place, and then she turned the deadbolt, maneuvering the metal slug, into a wood-drilled tunnel inside the frame. On the staircase, she shut off the reading room lights from a side switch, and the room blackened. Her smooth bare feet nestled on the soft stair runner as her eyes adjusted to the moonlight swath cutting across the floorboards. She climbed the stairs, past an octagon window in the narrow storage room on the second floor. The white ceramic tub, raised on little brass legs, was centered in a bathroom separating the stairs and the bedroom and directly over the back of the reading room. The tub bubbled with a hovering steam as the cascading water produced a deafening cacophony across the hall. Maddie turned the paddle wheel handles, embedded with a circular white ivory, 
and black H and C. The warm vapor soothed her skin and she paused. She walked to the right above the kitchen into an oversized bedroom with a single rose-flowered hurricane lamp next to a four-poster cherrywood bed. The room was swept by pale yellow wallpaper with a creeping English ivy woven within a pattern of baby's breath. Four elongated, thin-beveled trim windows were adorned with beige lace curtains furrowing in the evening breeze. From the antique cherry highboy, she slid open the bottom drawer and gently removed her flannel nightgown, but she doubted she would need it. The wide floorboards creaked as she returned to the bath and stepped onto the cold white tile. She pulled her jersey over her shoulders and lifted her feet into the soothing waters, inundated with a sweet jasmine body lotion she had sprinkled on the dry basin. Her sensitive skin slid against the ceramic and into the massaging water. She closed her eyes and inhaled the fragrance and raised her arms along the smooth tub rim. The black telephone on the tiny downstairs table rang and startled her in the warm water. She sat up quickly, clutched her dry, terry-faced cloth, and waited for the next ring. A second, escalating ring soon rattled the house. Maddie debated whether to leave the security of the heated water. In her mind, as the phone rang a third time, she stood next to the rotary dial phone in the moonlight room downstairs. The hiss and muffled chiming of the earlier call never left her, and she prayed the ringing would cease. She covered her ears and pushed hard enough to block the sound, but the reverberating bell's energy resonated within her bones. She released her hands and stood. Enough! Water drained off her body into the sudsy mass, and the house was again silent. It was as if the phone had never rung. The cooler air through the open tub window produced a cavalcade of goosebumps over her water-slick skin, but she hesitated, not knowing if she should head downstairs and disconnect the line. She opted to submerge her chilled skin into the warm tub water, but her muscles were tense, and she sat up in the tub, ears perched like a hunting dog. She finally wet her face cloth and poured the creamy body soap onto the dampened fabric. Her eyes were closed for the longest time. Then she stared into the darkened hall toward the staircase as she moved the cloth over her body at a quickened pace. In just a few minutes, she washed her hair and then rinsed. But as she stood on the fluffy bath mat, her heart thumped under the soft green towel, absorbing the remaining droplets from her abbreviated bath, and she slipped into her nightie. Again, before she backed into the bedroom, she turned to the white frame bathroom opening and the outline of the stair banister. She left the bedroom door open and moved diagonally to the poster bed. Reaching back, she pinched the hand-stitched quilt in the underlying pink cotton sheets. In a single motion, she turned the covers over. She looked back, this time, past the opened eight-paneled white door, and toward the bath. She slowly turned like a camera panning the room, but sprang back, retracting her hands as she focused on the single yellow rose still fresh on the pillowcase. She backed against the closet door and pressed her hands until her forearms ached. John, John, don't do this to me. At a lower but audible tone, the phone's ring shot up the staircase and through the tub room. Maddie grit her teeth, shaking her head like a mad dog as she ran from the bedroom into the still-sweetened bath air. She hit the switches next to the staircase, illuminating the storage area above the reading room, and the glass ceiling globe at the base of the stairs brightened. 
A second ring infuriated her further as she gripped the banister and leaped down the runner. You won't intimidate me! She clawed the receiver and swung it to her ear. A long, perpetual dial tone nodded her eardrum. No! No! She lowered the phone and followed the black cord back to the wall. A square black box was anchored to the white baseboard. Where's the jack? Maddie pulled on the cord, but resistance prevented any disconnection. Maybe she should just rip it from the wall. She lifted the receiver off the hook and set it on the tabletop's white dolly. These were not wrong numbers, she thought, breathing rapidly as she paced the reading room and finally settled in the wooden rocker. She seemed to follow the pendulum clock's steady pace, but her thoughts were centered on John. Once he had obtained the house's phone number, he could call her any time from anywhere. She glanced over to her memory sketch of McCabe, hidden alongside the end table. His dark eyes peered up at her through the dim steer lamp light. Why had he gotten so upset at her rebuff? And it was really not a rebuff. His reaction made sense if they had been going together for six months, but she had just met the man. Maybe he was unstable. Raymond was unstable. McCabe had described him as a kid who never grew up. She pictured him placing the prank call near the church. Despite all her brave thoughts about nailing Raymond Snowden, she was too scared to go near him. She sprang from the rocker, scanned the farmer's porch, and started up the second-floor stairs. But she waited until she reached the top before she pushed off the switch light. As she turned in the moonlight to cross the bath, the telephone company's blasting signal, reminding customers that a phone was left off the hook, screeched across the lower room. Damn! Without turning on the lights, she thumped down the stairs and with her nimble fingers placed the receiver back in place. The silver moonlight shone across the first floor's vinyl and wood. Then she fully descended the stairs and the floorboards were cold against her feet as she moved toward the kitchen's bay window. Fast-moving, ghost-like white clouds flew by the almost full moon above the windy trees. Her dry eyes ached now as she strained to see the beach. The yellow rose lying across the pink pillowcase stuck in her mind. She kept her eyes away from the phone, surrendered to fatigue, and then headed back up the stairs. Is Maddie just burnt out and paranoid because of her domineering husband? She doesn't know quite what to make of the manly McCabe. Even a simple old-fashioned telephone in the coastal house on the bluff racks her nerves, and she is alone at night. Now what? Episode 2 will expand on all her fears and her attempts to relax. I'm Robert P. Fitton, flying down to Portland before returning to the Exchange House next time. Ah, this phone. Who could it be? Indeed, who could it be? All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.